I'm Kyle Simon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. For episode 87, we read The Abolition of Man by C.S. Lewis, published in 1943. And we'll be discussing it live tonight here on Facebook, as well as through the usual podcast downloads. If you're joining us live, please join in with questions in the chat if you feel like it. Uh, if not, sit back and enjoy the show. All right. So Clive Staples Lewis was born in Belfast, Ireland before the partition in 1898. He entered Oxford University in 1917, but was quickly drafted into the British Army during World War I. He served on the front line in the Somme Valley in France, where he experienced trench warfare. After his service, he returned to Oxford and graduated with first-class honors. He became a fellow and tutor in English literature at Oxford University until 1954, when he was unanimously elected to the chair of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University, a position he held until his retirement. Lewis wrote more than 30 books that attract thousands of new readers every year still. His most distinguished and popular accomplishments include Mere Christianity, Screwtape Letters, and of course, The Chronicles of Narnia, which has sold over 100 million copies and served as the basis for three motion pictures. All right, so this book is essentially the recording of some lectures that C.S. Lewis gave uh, in 1943, and he's more or less addressing the subjectivist, we'll call relativist critique of objective value. This is a topic that we've taken up in, in a number of books, a number of conservative books, but this, this book is essentially, it's something of a, a treatise on natural law, although he doesn't call it natural law. He goes with, calls it uh, the Tao, which is essentially the, uh, I guess the, what we think of as the, the Chinese um, more or less version of natural law. And he starts mm -hmm. by addressing these authors of a textbook on, uh, on English that argue that we often appear to be saying something very important about something. And actually we're only saying something about our own feelings. So these value judgments are what he calls sentiments. Um, these, these authors of this English textbook are saying that value judgments are really only expressions of emotion that reflect uh, subjective experience. And it's not something that, that exists in objective reality. And Lewis is going to push back on this and say this, uh, I mean, essentially this subjectivist relativist perspective is a rejection of natural law. And um, by rejecting objective values and natural law, these educators he believed were, were producing what he calls men without chess, which we'll take up in just a minute, but it's one of his great, uh, one of his great um, taglines, but uh, it's essentially like, it's, it's not preparing students for real life. And, uh, and, and a, he, he says it's they're unprepared and, and unable to resist their base appetites. Right. He, he, he says that these guys are taking out the, uh, sort of in between of head and heart, head and, and, uh, and heart, you know, the, the chest, the, the, the virtue that when we learn it before we even learn reason, it, it lets us sort of steer our emotions in a positive direction rather than being ruled by them. And instead of um, instead of teaching those virtues, these newer kinds of teachers that he's criticizing here are saying, "We're just going to get down to pure reason. We're not going to have 
emotion or, you know, taboos and uh, superstitions and things from the past. We're just going to get into the real reason, the things that are objectively true. He says that, that instead the right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we make make we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. And whether there's just sentiments, that that is virtue. That's uh, what we traditionally de described as virtue. And he cites St. Augustine, Aristotle, Plato, and various concepts from Hinduism and, and Chinese religions, just all of them sort of getting at the same thing that we've been calling natural law when we read the Strauss book and others. The, the doctrine of objective value, he says, the belief that certain attitudes are really true, others are really false, to the kind of thing the universe is and the kind of things that we are. And I think that this is uh, this has always been important. I think he was writing in 43. So this is before the rise of, of postmodernism and critical theory and a lot of the sort of anti uh, objective theories that we are dealing with today. But it, it it's really even more important now because we, we hardly ever talk about virtue when we're, you know, he's talking about what teachers teach. And, and I think by teacher, he doesn't just mean in school, but just everybody who teaches and educates a, a child. But do we talk about virtue anymore? It seems, it seems like it's, you know, relic of the past, but, and even I think a lot of people would say more, more practically is virtue the end of education. Don't you go to school to learn how to do things? But I think it, as, as we, we learned in some of our, Books, uh, I think the uh, uh, the book after Virtue that we read uh, last season or season before, Vir Virtue isn't just it, it is behaving correctly and it is esteeming the right things, but it's also using everything in the way it's meant to be used, including ourselves. You know, as so, learning to do things is virtuous. You know, learning a skill, learning a trade is virtuous, but learning it for no reason it misses that point. I think it. I think it sort of doesn't have that grounding that lets people know what to do with their skills once they learn them. So I, I think as much, as much as this feels very old timey, it, it could equally apply today. And I, I think there are some schools out there teaching that, but it's, it's a, a different way of looking at things that we're not kind of used to anymore. And so he has this really interesting concept, men without chess, as I just mentioned a minute ago, and it relates to what you were just describing that if we don't have value judgments, if we don't have sentiments, we can call them sentiments, we can call them value judgments, but an ability to really discern between really good and bad or better and not as good. He says, in a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chess and expect, them, expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. In other words, the whole system of values, which happened to be, he says, in vogue among moderately educated young men of the professional classes during the period between the two wars, their skepticism about values is on the surface. It is for use on other people's values about the values current in their own set. They are not nearly skeptical enough. So I think he's saying that, you know, what, what abilities do we have to face the world and to understand the world if we have no value judgments whatsoever? And when it comes to these folks who make the argument, there are no value judgments that this is all uh, sentiments are really just emotion and an expression of subjective um, feelings. Well, then you really don't have 
a foundation at all to stand on to make any sort of judgments. And so men without chess are not prepared. They, they laugh at honor and we expect them, he says, to, to uh, we expect, expect of them virtue and enterprise, but we don't give them the tools to actually face the world. Instead, it's this muddled mess of whatever's good for you is good for you and whatever's good for me is good for me. And at the end of the day, it's just subjective and relative. And who's to say which one is better and which one is best? There is no, there is no objective standard. So essentially what we're dealing with is each other's emotions. Yeah, I think that's an important point as we look at it after the fact, after the things he was warning against did in large part triumph. You know, when you, when you look at the way we perceive our national leaders today, nobody expects uh, virtue of them. No, nobody expects them to have chests. And that, that's kind of sad, you know, because I think we used to. And it's not that people ever, it's not like people in the old days were perfectly virtuous and that all our national leaders and local leaders were, you know, exemplars. Some of them were crooks too, but we expected them not to be. And I think that's important. You know, it's it, like, the, the, yeah, the line we laugh at other and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. That, it's like how no one in politics ever apologizes for doing wrong anymore. Yeah, like they always they always used to do wrong. I mean, that was, you know, there were scandals as long as there's been politics. But they used to feel bad about it, and they used to not get reelected, or you know, they'd even resign, or you know, it, it was considered a disgrace. And it's not it's not surprising to me that that I mean, people talk about Watergate as sort of a watershed in that sort of thinking. When when a lot of people said, "Wow, the president's kind of a crook," that's that's pretty messed up. And it, we never kind of recovered from that. But I think it's, it's because of that widespread thinking and that, uh, that widespread relativism that we're afraid to promote our own virtues, things that a lot of us know are true. A lot of the idea of you know, being honest, dealing honestly with people, that, that is, it feels embarrassing sometimes to talk about virtue in public because you feel like, it feels corny, it feels naive. But these are the these I think are the values that uh, Lewis was talking about. In in the appendix, he lists eight sort of general uh, virtues, and this is always a problem with natural laws. Somebody will say, "Well, what are the natural laws?" And there's no good answer for that. Yeah, yeah. There, there's no list. It's not like you can just say the Ten Commandments because there's stuff that's not on there that is also good, and uh, that covers a lot of it. But it's not all of it for sure. So I I think that. We think, and he gets into this, we think that getting rid of those virtues and, and getting down to that, that pure reason is going to lead to a better, more proper, just community. But what it leads to is you can't, you know, when you're not nailed down, when there's no external place or thing that you can point to and say, this is the good, this is the Tao, as he calls it. Yeah then it's just whoever's in charge, whatever he wants, you know, that's, that's the rule. And you can, because yeah. the reason is not diminished. You can still justify anything. And we see that, we see that in our profession plenty. And, you know, we, you know, whether we're talking about lawyers or, or writers or lobbyists or politicians, there are plenty of people who will justify anything. And then I think that used to be people would say, come on, that's, that's really a stretch. Now they say, well, you know, it's a decent argument. Like, like, uh, 
Biden's OSHA reg is going to be justified when I think it, you know, it's preposterous on its face that that's legal, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, but oh, people, but people are going to say, well, who's to say what's right and wrong, you know, ends justify the means. And it's exactly this sort of horrible ends that I think Lewis was, was seeing coming about I mean, in, in elite circles in the forties. And it hadn't really trickled down to the masses until decades later. Yeah, so he says, like, if they strip off in order to get down to the realistic or basic ground values, you know, what is the ground? Because he's, he, I think he's exactly right. He says, a great many of those who debunk, quote unquote, debunk traditional, or as they would say, sentimental values, have in the background values of their own, which they believe to be immune from the debunking process. Isn't this exactly what we deal with, particularly with the left, is that... Mm-hmm. They want to tear down, tear down, tear down, you know, anything that's, uh, he, he calls them inherited taboos or religious sanction, but essentially like all traditional values, they want to tear down as, as something that's uh, in hierarchy, something that's, uh, holding society and, uh, and what they would view as the good and value down. But then the question is like, okay, so if everything is relative and everything's a social construct, then what are you basing your own? I mean, you're going to make this argument that history is going to judge or mm-hmm. I'm on the right side of history or I'm on the right side of, of, of what's right and what's true. And you're kind of like, well, that's interesting because based on what? I mean, what's, yeah. the, what, what's the, the metric? You know, we've already, de- we've already determined that everything is a social construct. Everything is relative to what's good for you or what's good for me. So if that's the case, then if you're telling me that, um, you know, you're, whatever, you know, diversity program or whatever is the, is the right. And you're kind of like, well, maybe it is, but what are you basing it on exactly? I mean, what's the, what's the, what's the concrete, you know, what's the granite that you're, that there's any foundation. And I think what we're finding is CS Lewis is making the argument here that if you, if you're not believing in the natural law in, in the Tao and you don't have a religious belief either, then essentially like you have to make an argument from, what basically what I think, you know, you're back to these uh, English professors that he's critiquing, which is essentially like you're sharing with me your own subjective emotion, your own, your own experience, which is fine as far as it goes. But what about, I mean, what, what concrete sort of uh, application does it have to me or to anyone else in the world? Yeah. And even, even before it's invented, he's seeing the flaw at the heart of postmodernism and critical theory is that, he says, if nothing is self-evident, nothing can be proved. Similarly, if nothing is obligatory for its own sake, nothing's obligatory at all. Right. And that you can you can certainly criticize prevailing values. I mean, it is part of our liberal democratic system that it's open to criticism and that people can question and and, and even change things. I mean, and his his conception of change, which we get into a little a little bit later, is is. I thought that very Burkean. It's it's not against all change. It's not this idea that this truth he's gesturing at has already been figured out. We might refine it further still in future generations, but to rewrite it completely, to ignore it completely, is pretty much impossible because there's no there's no way to have truth from outside the truth. And I think that when we were reading Marcuse last season, a lot of the he talked about the reason that their writing is so ghastly and unreadable is that they're trying to write from outside the system about things that are 
you know, it's like a, like a fish trying to describe water, you know, there, it gives them a problem, but the problem is there is nothing but the water, you know, and there's, there's, mm-hmm. I think that's, it is good. It is fine to criticize and it's fine to question. But like you said, after the, after all the questions are put out there and if the criticisms and things are nitpicked and, and threads are pulled, what are you left with? This, there's no, there's no there there. There's no new system to arise out of that criticism. It's just, it's just, uh, they call you know, as they call the whole thing, a, a power struggle and, and not about value at all. But really what is it? What are they pushing? If it's not there, I mean, they themselves deny that there's value. So ultimately we'd have to come around to just ruling by decrees, ruling by, emotions of those who are in charge and that when he talks about man conquering nature he says it's it's really just a few men learning how to conquer the rest of mankind as we call right. it man we call it man conquering nature but that's not really what happens nature exists it's not like you can tear down a forest but you haven't destroyed nature you know nature is 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 the real world and closing our eyes to it or saying it's a social construct doesn't make it disappear i think it's like a I think it was Philip K. Dick who talked about reality is that which, when you close your eyes, it's still there. Mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. That's what that's that's what I think Lewis is getting at as the Tao. It's the the thing that is the truth that is behind everything that that can't be wished away or substituted with something else. It it is what it is. And he has this argument against instinct, so it's kind of like it must be it must have been the case back then. It's some of these folks were arguing, some of the relativists were arguing from, from the position of, well, it's instinctual. We just know, we know it's right uh, as a matter of instinct. And he pushes back on that pretty hard saying, uh, instinct is a name for we know not what. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's being used a fairly def- uh, definite sense to mean an unreflective or spontaneous impulse widely felt by the members of a given species. Telling us to obey instinct is like telling us to obey people. People say different things. So do instincts. You know, essentially he's like, at the end of the day, our nature is, our instincts are an impulse to preserve our own children and grandchildren. <laughs> that's, that's kind of it. Now, I don't know today if the, these same folks would make the argument from instinct. It's a little bit of making the argument from your own personal, I guess, conscience or whatever. Is, yeah. Um, lived experience yeah yeah lived experience i mean conscience kind of implies that there's some some sort of soul that's uh that's not completely material where instinct is purely material you know it's completely driven by um, our impulses and i think that we have some impulses that are good like i'm hungry i need to eat and some impulses are not quite as good i like sugar i want to you know pound it (laughs) whatever (laughs) Yeah. And then you, we know some people who have just terrible instincts about, uh, you know, drives to, um, to whatever perversion or whatever. And so, you know, instinct is certainly not something you can trust. And, um, if, if we don't think that, uh, here he says that he's not making the argument from, from religion. He says he himself is, uh, is a theist, but he says, I may add that, Though I myself am a theist and indeed a Christian, I'm not here attempting any direct argument for theism. I'm simply arguing that we are, if we are to have values at all, we must accept the ultimate uh, platitudes of practical reason and having absolute validity 
that any attempt, having become skeptical about these, to reintroduce value lower down on some supposedly more realistic basis is doomed. And uh, this this reminds me of, uh, oh shoot, his name slipped my mind, but we uh, we read his uh, the philosopher uh, in our first season, but he's he was making this same argument that he he never actually tells us whether he himself is a believer in God or not, but ultimately the the argument is still going to hold. Like if um, if we're going to have any foundation for for value and for judgment of good versus versus evil versus you know if if everything is uh, completely subjective, then who's to say that pedophilia is actually bad, you know? And uh, who's to say that uh, helping your neighbor is actually good? There's really nothing. So if we if we have nothing to found any of this on, then we're just in this place of of just kind of like nihilistic uh self-absorption solipsism where you know it's it's all about our own thoughts and our own feelings and and how can we have a society on that basis yeah there's no there's no way to to make it anything other than just whatever animal spirits are animating the people in charge and that i don't know was that richard weaver who you were talking about or was it somebody else because it was yeah i mean we that definitely sounds familiar but it's um it's true that without that and we keep returning to that thing of being of something having to be true and you see it now even as critical theories coming into its own there's things that say well it's a social construct that's also really important and there's a hierarchy of you know which things are important and there's you know intersections of things that are important and it sounds like you're building an ideology again you're building a dogma again and it's it might be a false one but it's it it speaks to the idea that we people need something it can't we can't live in the world where everything's relative no one will believe that. I mean, just walking around will tell you things aren't relative. You, you know, the physical reality exists, and from that, other things have to happen. But yeah, he, I, I thought it interesting that he brought in a lot of different uh, strains of philosophy and religious thought, and because he, he is known for being a Christian and doing a lot of writings on Christianity, and uh, the Narnia books are have a lot of Christian allegory in them. So I thought I thought it was kind of interesting. He, he went with a, a broader approach to this and saying it's not just about my particular religion it's look at all these other traditions you know in east and right. west and, and it's um he says this thing which i have for convenience called the Tao, and which others may call natural law traditional morality or the first principles of practical reason or the first platitudes is not one in the series of possible systems of value it is the sole source of all value judgments it's hard to argue with that, especially when you see that all these different societies all came up with a lot of similar things. And that's, it, it comes back to Burke a lot in these readings, I think. Um, but, but Burke talking about, you know, the sort of accumulated wisdom of generations and how that's what tradition is. And it isn't just, well, we've always done it this way. It's that every generation has thought about this. We're not the first ones to question things. We're not the first ones to have new, try and have new ideas or try to refine old ideas, but what comes down to us has been through that crucible of thought and refinement and, and criticism and is intact or 
what what version of it we have now is intact. Mm-hmm. That that means something. There's there's weight to that, and it it is sort of he says people never actually create new ideas. We just sort of discover better versions of the old ones. And that's it's uh Oliver Wendell Holmes called the law of brooding omnipresence, and I think he meant it in a bad way, but that was the sort of theory of the law back then. And with some judges now is that there is a, a right way to live. There is a, a right set of rules for a community and for a nation. And we're all just sort of working to discover what that is. But that's different than saying, well, who can say uh, what's right for you, not right for me, you know, that sort of thing. And for some smaller things, for matters of taste, that's true. But for, for fundamental truths that we base a society on, there is something out there and you don't have to be a theist to i think see that that there is there's universal value and that without it we're just adrift like animals leo strauss was the thinker that i was thinking of so there you, yep. strauss nope. made that argument but if we were to if we were to step back a second and say okay what if what if these folks are right what if they're really you know natural law is essentially just a figment of our imagination or something that we're grasping at. I think where we are, I mean, where does that leave us? Well, I think it, I think where it leaves us is kind of the Saul Alinsky view of the world, which is, or the, that sort of Foucaultian view of the world, which is essentially that all we have is power relationships. You know, we have, Mm -hmm. we have, there's not actually any true values or there's no metaphysical truth whatsoever. Instead, all we have is we have those with privilege and power and those without and what we call objective value is really just the people in power imposing their will on those who are not in power. And, you know, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, obviously he's, he's well known for the argument that he made, which is essentially that uh, Christianity was an attempt to flip the script on the power relationship and uh, give the weak some power in the society as opposed to the strong by saying, actually, blessed are the meek, you know, blessed are the humble in heart, you know, um, blessed are those who, who, uh, you know, sacrifice themselves versus those who seek power and, you know, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's or whatever. And essentially, you know, Christianity was a way, was a, a mode of thinking to, he calls it the slave morality, but essentially like gives the, the little guy a chance to be on top. Mm-hmm. But if we don't, if we don't have any natural law, if we certainly, if we don't have, if there is no God, let's say, then what we're left with is this world that, uh, that a lot of postmodernists are describing. And so it is kind of frightening, you know, and, uh, and it, it makes sense that, they move in the direction of, okay, well, if there's not truth, then I guess the only thing there is, is the oppressor and the oppressed. And we're going to do what we can to be the oppressor and not the oppressed. Yeah. And I think you see that in societies that try and organize around an anti-truth and you see it in, in every, every socialist country that goes haywire right away pretty much. And, and then you get earnest socialists here in the, in the free world saying, well, that wasn't, true socialism that's because there is no truth in socialism there is no truth for them to fall back on so when their leaders start doing whatever they want and 
killing their political enemies and putting whole villages or whole ethnic groups into into slavery and, and gulags and, and all these other things like what's going on in China right now and what went on in the Soviet Union for decades. That is that is the true communism in the sense that it's the actual communism. It's the result of having no backbone, no chest. There's no virtue, you know, and and they consciously tried to destroy the bourgeois virtues that they thought were holding us back and restricting us and based on, you know, old woolly traditions, not really worth anything anymore. And that's what you're left with right away is, is that they're, they're ruled by emotion after that. It's, there's no reason in some of the things that went on there. There's, there's no reason to put a million uh, Uyghurs in concentration camps in, in Western China. That's, that's emotion. Their leaders hate them and they think they're a threat to them. So they'll do what they have to do. They're completely being ruled by emotion in, in a system that they tout as the highest expression of that Hegelian, Marxian, rational, whatever. that's supposed to do even better at uplifting the downtrodden. And yet you see, without that moral grounding, without virtue, that's what you get. It's a, it, just, it goes off the rails almost at once. Yeah, he says, stepping outside the Tao, or if you, we step outside of natural law, as you just described, they have stepped into the void, nor are their subjects necessarily unhappy men. They are not men at all. They are artifacts. Man's final conquest has proved to be the abolition of man. So that's, the, that's where we get the title of the book, is if we don't have the Tao, if we don't have a natural law, if we don't have anything that, that binds us together, that sews together the, the universe and and uh, the human experience, then essentially what we have left is the, no, their artifacts, he says, uh, abolition of man. Those who stand outside all judgments of value cannot have any ground for preferring one of their own impulses to another except the emotional strength. We see here, uh, Ronnie in the comments here says, anything that doesn't conform to the system is seen as a threat. Yeah, I think that's right. Because yeah. the system is the only fixed point they recognize the preservation of the system. Um, Vaclav Havel talked about that when we read uh, his essay last season. He said the system perpetuating itself is the, is the thing. That's the thing that they're concerned about. You know, after a couple generations, these socialist leaders are not even socialists anymore. They're just gray men, paper pushers, paper pushers with guns sometimes, but really they're just looking to perpetuate this uh, sort of, weird existence that they've chosen and, and found themselves in. And it's, yeah, it's the system that is sort of, that sort of becomes, well, it's a thing that exists, right? And if we don't have anything else that we can fall back, if we don't have any transcendent truth that like Russell Kirk talked about, we don't have any, you know, thing, any natural law, anything that is beyond ourselves, well, then we're just going to you know, keep preserving this thing because I've got it pretty good. I'm in charge or I'm close to in charge or I have a good job or whatever. And it just becomes its own sort of perpetual subvert, uh, subversion of humanity. Yeah, it's the little T truth. There's not a big T truth. Okay, so we, yeah. we pursue this little T truth, which is essentially the system. And we're going to identify the system, which is a construct. And... I mean, at the end of the day, what is the system? Well, what they'll say is that's the narrative. It's just a, a story that we tell each other. You know, the 
conquest of the strong over the weak is essentially uh, a narrative that we tell ourselves that, you know, we were victorious because we were virtuous or we're in charge because we were virtuous or these bourgeois values like getting up early and getting to work on time and working hard and putting in an honest day's work and, you know, um, studying hard, going to school, like learning as much as you can, advancing yourself, these bourgeois values. That's just the narrative. That's the construct. That's the system that you're trapped in. And, uh, and so instead of, instead of dealing with values at, uh, as they are, as they exist and as natural law, instead of, it's just this constant fight to exchange one system or narrative for another. I don't like yours, so I'm going to impose mine. And that's why we have to have these pronouns of, you know, his and him and her and whatever. And uh, Yeah, that's what he says. He talks about how old teachers would uh, – teachers have always molded minds, right? That's, that's nothing new. I mean, that's what, you, that's what happens when somebody is teaching you something. They're sort of changing the way you think, ideally. But in older times, they did so to get young minds to understand and conform to the truth from which they claim no liberty to li- – sorry – from which they claimed no liberty to depart. And that was a good phrase. It, you know, it was a sort of humility before the law, before the, the Tao, the truth, whatever you want to call it. They, teachers didn't see themselves as uh, re- white-collar rebels. You know, they were trying to impart things to young minds that would help them be good people and get along in the world and make something of themselves. You know, through all those sort of bourgeois values that you were just naming, uh, these are the things that sort of ethics and civics and things like that, that you would get taught. And now I think if you, if you ask about that in any average school, you get laughed at. And I think that was even true back when we were in school. I think because the teachers would look at you kind of funny, you know, that's not what we're here for. This is social studies or that, you know, this is, this is biology, but those things are part of the truth. I, I thought his point was kind of, elegant about how in conquering nature we conquer really ourselves it's not it's that nature actually ends up winning the closer we get to conquering it because then there's nothing holding it back and and that untrammeled nature that unbridled nature of ourselves of our own emotions just gets in the driver's seat when what it used to be is that the we'd use reason through virtue to sort of control our emotions and direct them towards good things mm-hmm. because you, because you'd be taught even before you got taught reason, you'd be taught virtue. You'd be taught, this is good. This is bad. And then when you were old enough to reason, you'd use that reasoning in pursuit of the good automatically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, people would fall astray. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say everyone would do it this way. Some people wouldn't do it that way. But that would be seen as wrong. I mean, virtue, like, and uh, like when we, what, what kind of stood out to me when we read after virtue a couple of seasons ago was that the end of virtue was a community act. You know, it was about living in conformity with nature, but also in conformity with the people around you. And you know that in the ancient world was seen as as, as an ordinary expression of virtue. What, but what do you do? when you're trying to be virtuous in a society that doesn't recognize virtue, that doesn't right. think it doesn't think it's real, doesn't think it's a thing. It's not even that they conceive of it differently. It's that they think it's 
claptrap, you know, meaningless old timey nonsense. That's, that's a lot harder. And it's, uh, it, it, it takes a lot more will to steer yourself in the right direction when you're, when you and the people around you aren't being taught that right direction from day yeah. one. We've seen in the last year and a half, what it looks like when we don't have a, a shared understanding of value and, and goodness. I mean, sure. this, uh, this pandemic was reflecting with another friend of mine about uh, 9-11, you know, today is uh, 9-13, but can't believe it's been 20 years since 9-11. But one of the legacies, I mean, there was obviously a lot of legacies and many of which were un- unpleasant, but for, for, for my part, one of the main legacies, a positive, was just an example of America coming together. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we had a real example of uh, America pulling together rallying around each other, being on the same team. And I think the, those visuals of like George W. Bush uh, standing on the rubble and uh, a woman yelled, I can't hear you. And he says, I, but I can hear you. And uh, it's pretty cool. And, you know, he had, he had over 90% approval rating. Now that didn't last. And he went down to 20%. (laughs) Uh, Once the Iraq war was, was up. you know, along the way. But the point being like, that's an example to me of, of how America can rally around one another and have a shared, I mean, shared value. And I hoped I had, I had strong hopes that the the pandemic would do that for us. But I think one of the reasons it hasn't is we don't view the world the same. And, and I think on the left, they'll say, well, it's, it's all the fake news, but I don't, I think fake news is just another way of saying like, you're having this battle of narratives, you know, you, you want to say that everything is, uh, everything flows from Trump regardless of what it is. If it's bad, if I don't like it, then it originates with Trump. And, uh, others are saying like, you know, I mean, I think some of the, some of the anti-vax doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I mean, I definitely support people's choices, but I don't quite understand why, why this has become a political issue as far as like keeping yourself healthy. But I think it's because we don't have a shared experience. I think it's because everything's become a battle and I don't think it, you know, it doesn't pretend good things moving forward. If we don't have a shared experience, it's going to, you know, like I said, it's going to look more like the Saul Alinsky view of the world of you get yours, you know, I don't care about you. I'm just here to get mine. Um, mm-hmm. But Anyway, what's, uh, what are your, what are your final, I think that's my final thought. What's your final thought? Well, I, I yeah, I agree with that. And it's, it, it's, uh, this book is, uh, it feels more recent than it is. I was surprised it was as old as 1943 because a lot of the things he's talking about feel like challenges that we're facing now. Um, I guess relativism has always been with us as long, as long as people have had ideas, there have been people who are, I guess, against the ideas of ideas themselves. Mm-hmm. Lewis, um, some of these start out and you're like, where is he going with this? But they really, they're, it's three lectures, uh, condensed, uh, or tied up together in a book and each of them, I mean, I would have loved to have heard them because they, they, they come to, when he comes around to the end, you're on board. He really, he explains things well, can tell he's, you can tell he's brilliant and that he's thought these things through. And it's a good, Mm -hmm. it's a good reaffirmation of the idea of truth itself, which, seems like a crazy thing to reaffirm 
but it we need it and uh, i think these are good reading for today they're not that long if any listeners want to check them out they're uh it's a good read i read it in a like uh in one day and uh, uh it's very enlightening good stuff uh worth your time yeah i agree i got to the end of it and i was like oh wait that's the end <laughs> it came pretty fast all right that's it that's that's lewis thank you all for joining us and uh let us know if you think this is fun maybe we'll do it again we could uh make turn it into a thing that we do but uh really appreciate you listening and and hope you enjoy it all right that's it Catch us next time.